Today we're in Ephesians chapter 5, so please turn there in your Bibles and let's pray once again before we look at God's Word. Father, we come and we come to you this morning as needy sinners and there you are loving us because you've loved your Son. What good news the gospel is, Father. As your word says in Psalm 75, 1, your name is near. You are near. Your character, who you are as Father and Redeemer, King, Savior, Almighty God, you are near to us now, and we believe in that promise, and we hope in that promise. So come once again, Father, tune our hearts to the gospel that we would believe It's truth and it's power today, Father, because many of us, myself included, Father, in our hearts we have built structures and buildings that have been built by the blood, sweat, tears, brick and mortar of bitterness and anger and unforgiveness, God. And we've built these structures, these idols in our hearts, God. And we need the gospel this morning to come in like a wrecking ball and to destroy the things that we hold in our hearts that keep us from loving you and from loving one another. So we ask you, Father, to swing the gospel once again at our hearts so that we can be free so that we can love and share your love with others. So help us now to thank you that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes we need some motivation to do what we're called to do. Yesterday evening at about 4.30 before we were, I was coming to the new members class that we had last night uh, Tabitha, our four-year-old daughter, was was laying on the ground, um, her head on a cushion from the couch, and I was in the kitchen, and I couldn't see her, and I thought maybe she had fallen asleep, and you parents know this is your worst nightmare if your kids take a nap at 4.30, because they sleep till 6.30 or 7, and then they're up all night, and they never go to bed, and if they're up all night, and they never go to bed, then that means you're up all night, and you never go to bed, so I saw her there, and saw the back of her head, and I said, Tabitha, are you awake? No response. Tabitha, Tabitha, wake up. Don't go to sleep. No response. And then I did and pulled out my best trick that I had. And I said, Tabitha, do you want a lollipop? Boom. She shot up and turned around and said, what? (laughs) She wasn't asleep. She was just watching the cartoon. She heard my voice, but she needed some motivation. She needed some sweetness that would pull her to do what she was called to do. See, and I asked her, Tabitha, would you have turned around if I said, Tabitha, do you want a carrot? And she said, no. And she loves carrots, and she loves fruits and vegetables. My kids do, but she said no. And I said, what if I said sugar? She said, yeah. What if I said bread? No. What if I said popsicle? Yeah. And so I went back and forth between some, in her eyes, not so good things and good things. And all of these sugar things were the things that she said would make her respond. There's sweetness there, something that she loves to taste. 
The gospel is the thing, the, the sweetness that causes us to obey God and do what he has called us to do. It is the only power that will empower us to do what he's called us to do. We've been looking at the gospel in our series, and last week we saw that God the Father has been loving His Son Jesus for all of eternity past. We saw that in John 17, 24, where Jesus said, You loved me before the foundation of the world. That God the Father in eternity past was loving His Son And we also saw that the love of God for His Son spilled over unto us, His children, those who have repented of their sins, admitted their failures, and run to Jesus as Savior and trust in Him. And that God loves us with the very same love that He loves Jesus, His Son. Jesus said that in John 17, 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. That's us even as you loved me. That God loves his children just like he loves his son, Jesus. It's amazing. We also saw in Ephesians 1 that that love of God stirred him to choose his elect children who would believe in him, and that's why he sent his son. And then we also saw in Ephesians 5, the text that we're in today, That God loves each of us as if we were his own child. That's what the phrase beloved children means. That God loves you, if you're a Christian, just as if you were the only child that he ever had. So we return to that text today and see now, in light of all of these gospel promises, we are motivated to imitate our God and to love others. Here's our big idea for today. Sin curves us inward, but the gospel propels us out to love others. Sin bends and curves us to focus on self, while the gospel moves us and propels us and catapults us out to love others. Love is an action verb. Love moves. Love has legs if you will. It walks, it moves, and God is without sin, so he is never turned inward in a selfish, sinful way. He is without sin, and his love moved out toward his son in eternity past, Jesus said, through the Holy Spirit, and that love then should move us out in the gospel to love others because God sent his son to die for us. We're called to move out and to love others just like God has moved to love us in the gospel. Look at Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What Paul is calling the Ephesian church and us to do in verse 1 is to imitate our heavenly father. That's what kids do. They, they copy their dad. They do what daddy does. They mimic and imitate their father. That's what kids do. Well, what is God the father like? If we're to mimic or copy or imitate God, it would be good to know what he is like. 
The Apostle John helps us in 1 John chapter 4, in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So God is love. John seems to be saying that if God is love and you know him, then you can't help but become a loving person. Let that sink in. If you claim to know and love God, it should be evident that you love people too. I think John would say it this way. If you hang out with God, you can't help but become a loving person. If you spend time with God, thinking about Him in His Word, in prayer, rehearsing the gospel, then you can't help but become a loving person. But John continues in verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The God who is the Father is love. And the Father who has been loving His Son for all eternity sent His Son Jesus to die for us when we didn't deserve it. And because God is love, we should love one another even when the people we have issues with don't deserve it. Michael Reeves says, Being perfectly loving from all eternity, the Father and the Son have delighted to share their love and joy with and through the Spirit. It is not then that God becomes sharing, being triune. God is a sharing God, a God who loves to include Indeed, that is why God will go on to create. His love is not for keeping, but for spreading. God the Father has been loving His Son Jesus through the Spirit and loving the Spirit for all of eternity. So love is not a strange thing for God to do. This is His M.O. This is who He is. He is love. And that's why it's very natural for God to create Because God wants to create people to share His love with. He has always enjoyed loving others, namely His Son, through the Spirit. Because God is a giver. He loves to shower His love on His Son. And He loves to shower it on His children that He loves through His Son. God's love moves out to others because God is love, because He is a giver. He loves sharing and spreading His love. Contrast the triune God that we serve, Father, Son, and Spirit. Contrast the Trinity with Allah, the God of Islam. Listen to how the Quran describes Allah, 
the God of Islam, the God that Muslims worship. It says in the Quran, Say not, Trinity. Desist. It will be better for you, for God is one God. Glory be to him, far exalted is he above having a son. Say, he is God, the one and only, God, the eternal, absolute. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. Here's what the Quran is saying. Allah is a single person God. He is not a father because according to the Quran, uh, he, he begets not, nor does he have a son. Allah is one person, not three. Allah is completely different from the Trinitarian God of Christianity. The God that we worship here at Grace. One God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But it is not just a matter of numbers here. Allah does not dwell in community. He is alone. He does not function like the Trinitarian God of the Bible. God the Father has been loving His Son through the Spirit for all of eternity. But Allah is alone. Islam has traditionally asserted that Allah has 99 names which describe him for how he has been for eternity. One of the names that describes Allah is the loving one. He is called a fount of love and all-embracing in his love. But Allah is also called the eternal one in the Quran. But how could Allah be loving in eternity? How could the eternal one be the loving one in eternity past if he is all by himself? Before Allah created the world or people as Muslims claim, there was nothing for him to love. If Allah eternally loves his creation, there's a problem though. There's a problem because if he depends on creation to be able to love, then Allah is dependent on creation. And that goes against the core Islamic belief that Allah is dependent on no one. How can a solitary loving God love anyone when loving involves having someone to love? How can Allah be this solitary, loving God when there's no one for him to love until he creates? How can a God who is dependent on no one have to have people in order to love? Allah must have people in order to be loving. But by needing people to love, he is dependent on them. Allah is curved inward, but the Christian God is Trinitarian, and there is community and love and fellowship and joy that exists between the three persons of the Godhead. The Father loves His Son. Before God created the world, He was loving His Son, and that love spilled over into His choosing a people to share in that love. Our God is not alone in eternity, but in community, in uh, fellowship, sharing that love with one another, Father, Son, and Spirit, and God wants to share His love with His children. 
the Father is not some selfish hoarder. He freely loves and gives. And that's why he sent his son Jesus. Puritan Richard Sibbs described God as a life-giving, warm son who delights to spread his beams and his influence in inferior things to make all things fruitful. Such goodness is in God as is in a fountain or in the breast that loves to ease itself of milk. Those that are led with the Spirit of God that are like Him, they have a communicative, diffusive goodness that loves to spread itself. Sibs is saying, those that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, love to share and spread the love that they have tasted. God's nature is to share, to give, to spread, to explode out in love to others. But because of Adam's sin, our nature is to worship self. Sin curves us inward, but the gospel propels us out to love others. And when you've tasted of the sweetness of the gospel... It motivates you to love others, even the unlovable. Because God in Christ loved us when we were unlovable. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Rather than imitate the triune God, many of us actually imitate Allah, the God of Islam. We turn inward and we are curved and bent inward because we're obsessed with ourself, our wants, our wishes, our desires, our preferences. I want church to be this way. I want my pastor to look like this. I want my small group to be like this. And we curve in on ourselves and we worship ourselves. We exist, many of us, and live alone in love with self, apart from true Christian community. In his book, God So Loved, He Gave, Kelly Capick describes it this way. In the early church, St. Augustine spoke of sin as that which bends or curves us to the ground, making us more like the beast and less like the God whom we were to image. He speculated that we were created to have our heads and hearts raised toward Yahweh and that sin is that which turns our gaze from him. Martin Luther picked up this imagery in the Reformation, arguing that sin actually bends or curves us upon ourselves. Homo incurvatus in se. We were designed to embrace God and others, but instead we are now consumed with ourselves. Luther's protege, Philip Melanchthon, describes sin as the painful reality that the human heart turned in upon itself. Sin curves us inward, 
but the gospel, when we taste of its sweetness, propels us out to love others. Sin and self makes us curve inward, but the gospel propels us and catapults us and moves us out to love and embrace others, even those that we struggle to love. See, that's why Paul connects here in Ephesians 5, our being loved as children of God, our being loved as if we were the only child that God had. That's why he connects that with our imitating God, because children by nature imitate their parents. But we by nature, because of sin, turn inward and curve in upon ourselves and worship ourselves. So how will we ever begin to imitate our God, imitate our Father, or walk in love? How do we keep from curving inward? The key is the gospel, which Paul mentions, because the gospel, at its very core, is outward focused. Look at Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And here comes the gospel. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We will never imitate our God. We will never walk in love. We will never focus on others until we understand and embrace and cherish and taste the sweetness of and rehearse the gospel. Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the gospel. His love propelled him out to love others. And he did this when we were enemies, when we were rebels. He did this when we did not deserve it. He moved toward us. He took the initiative and it pleased his father. So to walk in love, I think Paul is saying, is to get the gospel, that you get it. You get it down into the nooks and crannies of your heart and you become so overwhelmed by the fact that God moved towards you, that his love had legs, that he took the initiative to move towards you when you absolutely did not deserve it. When you begin to understand that, you will begin to walk in love. So imitating God and walking in love is powered by the gospel. You will never, ever, ever be able to do it in your own strength. It takes old-fashioned gospel rehearsal, remembering and reminding yourself over and over that Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you when you were an enemy and you did not deserve it. It is the power that you need. Do you want to imitate God? Do you want to walk in love You have to rehearse the gospel because that's where the power is. That's where the Spirit of God is. And when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, then you'll actually begin to do, by God's grace, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, which come right before the text that we've been looking at. So look at Ephesians 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There's the gospel 
again. I love how the gospel just pops up all over. See the phrase in verse 32, as God in Christ forgave you. Do you struggle to forgive someone? How in the world do you begin taking steps toward forgiveness? You remind yourself that God in Christ forgave you of sins that are far more weightier and far more heinous than anything that anybody has ever done to you because you have offended a holy God. What they've done to you pales in comparison to your sin against the holy God. And yet Jesus' life and death were so acceptable to God that he received them as a fragrant offering. In other words, the gospel smells good to God. It pleases him. It pleases him when he smells the gospel in our life. When we forgive others because we have been forgiven, it is a fragrant offering that goes up to God, and he loves to smell it and breathe it in deep. It pleases God when you put away bitterness. It pleases God when you put away wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. All of these sins come from a heart that is curved in on itself, focusing on self, worshiping self. All of these sins reinforce and curve us in even more. Only the gospel can begin to bend us outwardly. It pleases God when you are kind to one another, when you are tender-hearted, when you forgive one another. Why does it please God? Because when you do this, it puts the spotlight on His Son and it glorifies Him. God the Father loves to highlight the work of His Son, Jesus. God the Father loves it when His people are empowered by the Holy Spirit through the gospel to love and forgive others. God loves to look at your life and see your love start walking toward other people who don't deserve it. He loves to see you empowered by the gospel and walking in love and giving grace to people who have offended you who don't deserve it. Sin curves us inward, but the gospel propels us out to love others. When we realize that we don't deserve grace, then we'll be empowered to give it to those that we think don't deserve it. We'll be empowered to get up and walk towards someone in love only as we get the gospel, as we understand God's love for us, as we taste the sweetness of the gospel. We'll be empowered by the gospel, through the Spirit, to move out, to love others, and love them when we realize that God moved out to love us when we were unlovable. Do we think that love is optional? Jesus summed up God's commandments this way in Matthew 22. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Half of your Christian life is love of neighbor. Half of your Christian life is loving your sinful neighbor who does not deserve grace and who does not deserve forgiveness or love. Don't think that you can be a Christian and just say, I love God, that's it. Half of your discipleship, half of my discipleship involves loving others. It involves loving people who are hard to love and people who don't deserve it. Tim Challies says, Love for other Christians is the great test of our commitment to Christ and our likeness to him. This love is put to the test in a unique way in the midst of trouble and disagreement. That's why people pull out like Allah and live alone and isolated. Because it's hard to love people, isn't it? I struggle to love people. You struggle to love people. I'm a sinner just like you. I curve in with the best and the worst of them. I know it's hard to love sinners And I know that some of you struggle to love me. I'm okay with that. Just tell me that you're struggling to love me. Tell me it's hard. Just don't say, I won't love you. That will concern me. But if you come to me and say, Benji, I don't like you. But I'm struggling to love you. I'm okay with that. Chances are I may be struggling to love you too. (laughs) Which is why I put on Twitter and Facebook a while ago, Jesus loves you and I'm trying. Just tell me you're trying. Tell me that it's hard. Tell me that there's pain and there's hurt. Tell me that it's hard to trust. If you can do that, then you're in a perfect place to receive God's grace through the gospel. But stubborn, hard-hearted indifference will only take you deeper down into bitterness and to curve in upon yourself. Sin curves us inward to focus on our hurts, our needs, our wishes, wants, and preferences. But the gospel propels us out to love others. Let me ask you today, who do you need to walk to in love today? Who do you need to get up and maybe even physically in this room go to right now and love or forgive or ask for forgiveness? Who are, in the, who are the people in your life that you need to love the same way that God loved you? You get the power to do it by recognizing that God the Father's love overflowed for His Son by the Spirit and that God's love moved out to sinners like you and sinners like me when we did not deserve it. God fixes this broken world by sending and giving his son for sinners who don't deserve it. That's the gospel. And God fixes broken, messy relationships and situations with that very same gospel. So my challenge to you today is imitate the triune God. Don't imitate Allah. Don't hide away 
by yourself like Allah. Don't be curved inward. Move out in love like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Move out like the gospel, which is represented here in the elements at this table as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate communion with God. Let these elements be proof to you that God's love moves out to others. Let these elements enable you, by God's grace, to move you out and to walk in love, to give you grace, to give you strength for the journey. Partaking of these elements will give your love legs so that you can move and not be paralyzed by self. These elements here, the bread and the cup, are the gospel on display. These elements are another opportunity for us to rehearse the gospel. The bread and the cup remind us of of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They remind us that Jesus lived the life that none of us could ever live because we're sinners. We're messed up. The bread and the cup remind us that Jesus died the death that we all deserve because we're sinners and because we're messed up and because we are rebels against a holy God. These elements are one gigantic billboard screaming out to us that God loves sinners. Will you repent and trust in Jesus today? so that you can escape eternal death and hell. Maybe you're not a Christian here today. Somebody has to pay for your sins. Somebody has to be punished for your rebellion against the holy God because God is holy and just and righteous. He cannot overlook your sin because you have offended him. He would be unrighteous, unjust, if he just said, that's okay. Somebody has to pay for your sins. Either you will... In hell forever, or you can turn to Jesus and let him pay the penalty for your sins and take your punishment as he did on the cross. His blood was spilled to wash away our sins. If you're not a Christian, I beg of you, turn to Jesus, trust in him today. He will satisfy you with a sweetness that this world cannot compare with. And for those of us who are believers, Let's be reminded of that sweetness as we eat and drink at the Lord's table today. We're encouraged by Scripture to examine ourselves before eating the Lord's Supper. None of us ever come to this table worthy. The Bible says, examine yourself for you may drink and eat judgment unto yourselves. If you can come to this table today and say, I am unworthy, then you will take the elements in a worthy way. If you can come and say, God, I need you. Maybe you're struggling to love and forgive someone harboring bitterness. If you can say, God, help me. It's hard. I know I need to do it. Change my heart. Help me. Please help me. Then come to the table and eat and receive strength and grace to do that. It's what this table is for. But if you're hard-hearted and you say, I will not forgive, then don't eat and drink. But if you can come and say, God, help me. I need you then come to the table and ask God to help you love and forgive others. Come to the table 
like a hungry beggar today, needing God's grace. John Calvin said this, All, like hungry men, should flock to such a bounteous feast. We should flock to the table to receive God's grace. He also said it was ordained, the Lord's Supper, communion, to be frequently used among all Christians in order that they might frequently return in memory to Christ's passion by such remembrance to sustain and strengthen their faith and urge themselves to sing thanksgiving to God and to proclaim His goodness. Finally, by it to nourish mutual love and among themselves give witness to this love and discern its bond in the unity of Christ's body. So come like a hungry man to this feast this morning that you may remember what Jesus has done for you, that you may be sustained and strengthened your faith as you believe God's promises of what these elements represent. Come so that you can sing thanksgiving to God and proclaim his goodness to you. And finally, come to be nourished with mutual love here in the body that you may be able to love others with the same love that God loves you. Let's pray. Father, we do come broken, needy, desperate, because we are all sinners. And we struggle to love and we struggle to forgive. And we ask you, God, help us now. Help us to rehearse the gospel and to realize your great love for us and sending Jesus when we didn't deserve it. And help us to be able to go and extend that forgiveness to others that we and they may walk in freedom. Send the wrecking ball of your gospel down now. Swing it far and wide, Father, and break down the structures and the buildings and the communities and the cities that we have built up of anger and bitterness and forgiveness and break them down with your love today that we may be freed from those chains, freed from hiding out in those buildings and nursing the bitterness, but that we may walk free in the gospel today for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name.